Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're talking to Simon J. Williamson, performer for Max Rebo and many other iconic characters in Return of the Jedi. If you've ever listened to this podcast before, you know how much I love the fascinating stories of the puppeteers and mime artists, especially from Jedi. This is no exception. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 21, Simon J. Williams. Today we are joined by Mr. Simon J. Williamson, who played Max Rebo, as well as many other characters and aliens in Return of the Jedi. Mr. Williamson, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Maybe let's start by talking about how you first got into puppeteering and mime artistry. When I was at uh, university studying zoology, as it happens, I was also a big fan of Monty Python, British comedy group. And at school, that had inspired me to perform and write in my own sketch work. Uh, When I went to university, I forgot about that a little bit, but it never entirely went away. And also, while I was in at university, I decided to take up karate. And I finished my degree in zoology. For some reason, I think I went to a festival of mime at the Sherman Theatre, which was the university theatre in Cardiff. It just opened up a whole world for me. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. And it was a show called Un Jour La Terre um, by Jean-Pierre Amiel, a Swiss mime artist. And at the end of it, I noticed that a whole group of people were sort of talking to each other and saying, are you going to the workshop or something? So I got talking to them and it transpired they were on a one-year course in theatre studies. They said, They suggested I come along to this workshop, and I thought, why not? The whole mime thing seemed really interesting. And so I went went to that, and I started attending a lot of their um, workshops. So I wasn't officially on their course, but and then they asked me to be in plays and little shows, and it was fantastic. And at Cardiff at the time, there was a mime-based involving acrobatics, and I sort of, uh, I had a job at the time post-university, working in the botany laboratory as a lab technician, when after three months or so, they decided, would you like to make this job permanent? That I've discovered theatre, which they thought was a bit strange. Um, So I wasn't being paid for it, but I was doing various shows and stuff and just loving it. Introduction to um, physical theatre, as well as more orthodox theatre styles. And it happened that because of the, the unique movement of martial arts, it was somewhat different and interesting to them. Um, And so I just started working in theatre and uh, I auditioned for a show, got the job and moved overnight down to London and then started the life for a few years of a, of a jobbing actor. There's a, a weekly newspaper called The Stage in England. You know, it doesn't they don't seem to yield the, the kind of jobs you'd want television or repertory theatre. Uh, those kind of or telephone sales jobs. But there was one. And it was an advert put out by the Henson organization um, looking for equity, actors, equity being the actors union in the UK, a bit like um, SAG and AFTRA in the US, I suppose. It wasn't exactly clear what the what the job entailed. It was something about bringing to life large, large scale creatures. um, And I assumed it was some sort of 
making some sort of human pyramid like acrobats would do. So anyway, I went along to the first group audition with most of London Fringe Theatre from the physical world there. And my surprise, the person conducting the workshop was Jean-Pierre Amiel, whose one-hour class I'd attended at Cardiff some time before. And so that was nice. I knew a little bit about his work and I'd seen his show. And it was a very physical audition. And luckily, I called to the next audition, which was at it was at one of the studios, television studios. And at this audition, for the first time, we had a the top half to stick our hands into. And the improvisation was to slowly walk up and stop moving around and bearing in mind that the mystics were extremely ancient. So I did this and other people did this. And from that audition, we reduced to a group of, I think, 10 or 11 performers. And us 10 or 11, we then had two weeks of physical workshops with Jean-Pierre Amiel at the Henson's headquarters in Hampstead. And we'd go on to the we'd train, which is a sort of parkland-like area uh, just across the road from the Henson's. And then after the end of two weeks, uh, they said, we're going to split you up into two groups four of you and work right through the entire film and the other six will join in i don't know i think it was something like three or four five months something and i was unfortunately in the second group so i wasn't due to um join for some months and shortly afterwards i received a call saying toby one of the four has injured his back and you are the next person are you freed tomorrow i said absolutely and so that was the beginning of on dark crystal Yes, so it was very, uh, it was very intensive, particularly um, the health of one's back, the performing the mystics. So, moving from your work on Dark Crystal, how did you initially get involved in the production of Return of the Jedi, and how did you really get the role of Max Rebo and and the Gamorrean guards even? Well, yes, um, well, I was hired as a puppeteer. And I think there were three or four of us, so Swee, Swee Lim and Hugh Spite. Um, and then Mike Quinn in a different category. I think he came in a little bit later, but I'm not absolutely sure. We were working in the same room and the same studio and same set as a group of eight or nine mime performers. Uh, I considered my work on Duck Crystal to be a combination of puppetry and mime. Um, I was originally slated to do a character called Six Six, who was a not very sophisticated puppet. There weren't elements of movement you could incorporate, really, to make it live. And he sort of sat on the floor, so I was under the set. Um, and I think this was the one that Richard Muckwin, the director, didn't particularly like set camera setups. And George Lucas would come in and say, no, no, we have to have him in there. So <laughs> Phil Tippett, the um, creature designer, the great Phil Tippett, um, we have this character here. And they showed me Max Rebo. And I thought, yes, I would love to play Max Rebo. His, the Jabba's Palace set was quite dark in places. And I thought he's going to have an enormous impact to stand out because of his color. And also he looks fun and interesting. He wasn't a very sophisticated puppet. There wasn't much that you could do with his face, for example. Once I was inside, there, were, there was a cable crew who would operate a little kink in his, tr- in his trunk, his snout. And they would... When he's rocking side to side, I think George Lucas's idea was he really wanted the ears to flap around as if they were cloth. Similar kind of idea. But in fact, the Max Rebo was quite a hard, stiff, um, heavy rubber. Uh, the ears didn't really move very much. So a cable crew was on, on there as well to add a, a little bit of flapping around. 
although now I disco- uh, discover that they're not ears at all. They're actually flippers. It's amazing how after you've made a film, um, all sorts of um, decisions are made afterwards that you weren't aware of, or maybe hadn't been made while you were shooting. Uh, indeed, wasn't called Max Rebo on set. He was called Red Ball Jet. And Red Ball Jet has now become the name of the organ that uh, Max sits in. So it's from being Red Bull Jet, the character, Max Rebo sitting on a Bull Jet organ. And right from the word go, I seem to remember that um, the what you think are his arms and his hands playing the the organ are actually his legs. So, oh, this is fantastic. Yes, he's playing. He doesn't have arms and he's playing the organ with his feet. I rather like that. So the robot chicken um, animation came out where Max escapes and he's wandering around. And then to my horror, he has four limbs. He has legs and arms. And then a toy came out as well, where you can take out the little model Max Rebo from the uh, Red Bull Jet organ. And he's got arms and legs. They released early design prototypes showing that he's got, he basically plays the organ with two limbs. His, uh, along with other interesting um, prototypes where at one stage Max Rebo would have had two people inside him side by side, a bit like the head of, of Jabba. And one hand would be, one puppeteer would have his hand way above him operating the head. So that's how I got Max Rebo. And I thought, yes, please, I will, I will, um, I'll accept this lovely job. And they gave me some music to go and listen to. And the next day we were shooting, I think. No, this is, this is music to my ears. There is an incredible article um, I think it was StarWars.com, Pablo Hidalgo wrote it about this, right? Where it's like the maquettes and the concept art and everything about the flippers and the legs for Max Rebo. Um, I'll put it in the show notes because it is it is just one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars trivia and behind-the-scenes stuff. And I'm so glad that that, that was the original intent of, of the character. Yes, because he sits on a cushion, which is kind of obvious when you listen in. I don't know what people thought it was before, but yes, it's definitely a cushion. The other thing about Rebo is I couldn't see anything. So the eyes are, are way above my kind of uh, my forehead, really, up ahead, ahead of my forehead. Uh, so I had to remember where things were for when I, I turned to various various points and beat the band in, etc., with with my hands. And when the uh, the nuclear detonator appears, I kind of you know, was reacting to a um, an earphone in one ear that told me what was happening so I could react accordingly. But yes, I had to kind of remember where I should put my up in once I was in. Well, I could literally talk about Max Rebo and his legs for, for hours. Uh, I would love to talk for a second about your other roles in Return of the Jedi, uh, specifically Gamorrean Guards. You actually, you played quite a few. Do you know which scenes exactly you ended up making the cut for? Well, I played a number of them because um, different scenes, different, you know, different Gamorrean guards, quite similar. And uh, I played the the one who gets eaten by the Rancor monster. So a stuntman does the first of the, does the fall, and I take it from getting up, uh, turning round, seeing rank, the Rancor coming towards me, and then trying to escape. And at the same time, because you shoot things, shots at different times. I was also one of the Gamorrean guards sort of egging myself on and reacting at the top. So I'm two Gamorrean guards in the same sequence. And then there, there were further sequences that, you know, had a couple of couple of Gamorrean guards or sometimes three or four. They were great fun to play because it, it is fun to play um, a large creature who's kind of unrestrained and also stupid. You know, it's It's got a great bulk to it and it is fun to play. My recollection is that we'd heard that 
some previous Gamorrean guards earlier on in the shooting sequence had been played by um, extras, but they either weren't doing it very well, weren't really bringing, bringing it to light, or I think someone said one had nearly fainted. So Hugh Spite and I, uh, both from Dark Crystal, we went up to Howard Kazanjian to kind of make the request. And we said, we'll get in a couple of Gamorrean guard costumes and we'll show you what, what we think they can do. Which we did. So we got on the Gaborian guards and just basically uh, intimidated uh, Howard Kazanjian, who was one of the producers. And from that moment on, pretty much, I think, whenever you see just two Gamorrean guards, it's likely to be uh, Hugh Spite and myself. So that was fun because that kind of extended our contract a bit. Although that that's a job I would say is not puppeteering. That's the same kind of job that the group of, you know, that mimes were playing uh, some of the other creatures in Jabba's Palace. Uh, and that was towards the end of my time on the shoot. In the middle of it, we did uh, Mon Calamaris. And that was mainly the group of mimes, but also they had enough calamari suits and wanted more people. So they asked, uh, well, I got, I think I was the only puppet that got asked to be a Mon Calamari. I could be wrong. I think Hugh Spite did another character in that sequence. And then also on a set unit one day and on a full unit on another, um, I operated the eye blinks of Nine Numb. So mine, uh, Mike Quinn the main puppeteer when he's in the cockpit with uh, uh, Billy D. Williams and I was the eye blinks. And then on another day on a similar set, we did some characters similarly with a puppeteer, either Mike Quinn as main puppeteer or a combination of the two of us on cables. We did a character we called Ernie Akbar and Ten Nam. And those characters didn't actually survive into the movie. And it was only when the, that a, a Danish uh, Star Wars fan that had brought me out to Denmark for a, a convention, emailed me and said, Simon, is this you? And he sent me a link to a sequence in the, um, on the Blu-ray where of this, this forgotten sequence, which I'd forgotten entirely doing, but it clearly, you know, directs me, Simon, do that again. That bit's great. Do that again. I thought, wow, I'd forgotten entirely because for so many years after the release of Return of the Jedi, and even when you do it, when you do a film and it's quite soon afterwards, let's say you, you do a film and six months later it's out, uh, but you forget some of the stuff you've done or, or you sort of gloss over it in your mind. And that, I think, is pretty much my characters I did on Return of the Jedi. All great fun. So after your work on, on Jedi, you still were very involved with the Henson organization, um, Great Muppet Caper, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, what was kind of your involvement with the Henson organization and, and how did you kind of continue your work as a puppeteer and as a mime artist? It's really a, a holdover from having been involved in Dark Crystal. So um, I was only really, you see, I primarily considered myself as a as a, um, a mime or physical actor performer. The puppeteering uh, I got to do at the at the Muppet level, putting those kind of creatures, those kind of Muppet creatures, um, the ability to do that really came from workshops that Jim Henson would conduct while we were rehearsing Dark Crystal and while they were, you know, preparing Great Muppet Caper. I never considered myself primarily a puppeteer. And at the time of Dark Crystal, um, we were called body puppeteers to distinguish us from the kind of work that the main Muppeteers would do. The main Muppeteers in Dark Crystal, for example, they, they were basically the Skeksis who... Um, 
I like to say they had an easier job than us physically in many ways because they could be upright all the time. Whereas in a mystic in Dark Crystal, you are crouched over it. And the uh, the Gotham, which I played as well, they're also so. Uh, I never really regarded myself as a, as a as a great puppeteer in terms of muppeteering terms. So during those films, if they had a sequence where they required a lot more than the usual number of corn me. So I only did I think I did a day or two on Great Muppet Caper while we were we were rehearsing for Dark Crystal because the two films were filmed back to back at Elstree Studios. After Dark Crystal and Return of Jet the Jedi, I sort of um wasn't so much of that work going on and the Hensons soon moved out. They were apart from Greystoke, the Tarzan film, which um I phoned them up and I said, I've been in Dark Crystal, um I've been in Return of the Jedi the they said, oh, come along. So having them at such and such a place. And then they said, oh, hold on a minute. How tall are you? And I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm a touch up by foot nine. Said, oh, no. He said, we can't use you. We're not, we're not auditioning any, anybody to play the apes who's, who's over five foot six. That would have tied in that, you know, my puppeteering, my body puppeteering experience with the zoology interest, which I'd abandoned a few years before, um, graduating at Cardiff University. So that would have appealed to me on so many levels, and um, particularly as my interest in zoology at that time was specifically in um, African animals, It'd be chimps, gorillas, and also lions, leopard, etc. So it would have been a nice kind of circular thing to... Uh, to um, combine my older interest with my new one, but it was not to be. Although I did hear, that, um, as people walked side the at the side of the door, there was a bar or uh, a mark on the side of the door at set at five foot six. People would instantly know who was five foot six and under, and who was actually cheating a bit. And I heard that some someone became aware of this. I don't know which performer, and so they. They came in slightly crouching, but not obviously. So they'd, they'd hit, you know, they'd be under the five foot six bar. So what I did on with the Muppet, it's just small Muppet characters. And then a similar thing happened years later in that Frank Oz was directing Little Shop of Horrors and they needed lots of the the tendrils of the plant and the, the plant, the singing pods when, the, uh, when Audrey II, the plant gets really large sort of a, a second string puppeteer for certainly for the Muppet films and but by that stage I'd already been out and, you know getting back to acting roles where my face and so for some of the films in between I simply wasn't available that's how it sort of happened and then and then by that stage of course CGI was beginning beginning to come in in a big way and we were all thinking well that is days numbered uh, and they were to some extent but it's nice to see that uh on the newest Star Wars films, uh, traditional film puppeteering. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it is one of my favorite parts of these new Disney movies, this return to form and this obvious love of physical and real effects that, I mean, were very present in the prequels, but especially in those original movies, uh, the puppeteering and the hard work that goes behind these masked creatures really comes into play with these new movies. Yes, it is good. It is good. It's um, it's it's gratifying. I'm biased, of course. I do prefer uh, the techniques we used over CGI. But you know, CGI, motion capture stuff can be fantastic. But for me, it, it, that element of you, you knowing there's a physical presence there, you know, on the celluloid or on the digital now. 
I, I definitely agree. Well, uh, Mr. Williamson, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me about these incredible stories and these incredible moments and characters. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Okay, well, nice talking to you, and always good to talk about this stuff. When I was in Germany recently, and you forget how much you know and how individual, how unique this type of work is. It's only sometimes when pressed on a question that you think, well, yes, they don't make films quite like this anymore. It's sort of, we're part of a, a, of a wonderful era. And at the same time, as I said before, I'm meeting up with people like Toby, Dave Barkley, etc., and uh, Mike Quinn recently. So it's it's fantastic. It's it's kind of nostalgic, and you know you forget sometimes contribution you made. So I'm very glad to talk to you, and it's been fun. Thank you again to Mr. Williamson for the time and much-needed deep dive into the biology of Max Rebo. I had such a blast talking to him. For more information about upcoming appearances and his career, go to his website, simonjwilliamson.co.uk, or follow him on Twitter appropriately at RealMaxRebo. So until our next episode, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.